You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In his groundbreaking book, After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre begins with a simple proposal. Let's study ethics as if human beings were historical contingent beings, and perhaps some new questions will arise. The results were a revival of virtue ethics and philosophy and theology, new attention to the interactions between literary narratives and philosophical treatises, and all sorts of interesting new kinds of research. In his new book, The Faiths of Others, Tal Howard proposes the same kind of question when it comes to interreligious dialogue, exploring the context and personalities and the events out of which inclusivist and pluralist theories of religious interaction emerge. Howard sets the stage for some fruitful explorations, situating questions of ritual and belief in a story that also involves empires and technologies and world fairs. Christian Humanist Profiles is happy to welcome Tal Howard to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to start with some of your early history in this book, namely the relationships between early Christianity and the God of the Judeans on one hand, and between early Christianity and the gods of the other nations, Athens and Rome, on the other. To what extent do these two relationships set the stage for what religious studies writers call inclusivist and exclusivist approaches to spiritual and ritual differences? And to what extent do we need to qualify our use of those terms this early? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate the question. Um, I mean, those terms, I think you're right, they only became um, you know, proposed and rigidified uh, uh, you know, later, uh, much later in history. Um, and Christianity, of course, is born at a time of you know, a, a quite a bit of religious pluralism um, in the ancient ancient Near East. But uh, in, the, in the book, in broad strokes, uh, I think you could say that early Christians, patristic writers, um, you know, had a more exclusivist view, especially toward the, the, the pagan, the Greco-Roman gods, uh, but they were much more open to um, pagan philosophy, uh, Plato and Aristotle uh, and others. I mean, of course, you had some church fathers like Tertullian, um, who was a little more exclusivist and very concerned about the you know, pagan, pagan influences. Um, I mean, of course, uh, you know, the relationship of Christianity and Judaism, that's an old and ancient one. Uh, and there were some voices early on, uh, like Marcion, who wanted to, um, you know, essentially uh, you know, cut off the Old Testament altogether and see uh, uh, the New Testament God as a completely new new thing. But the, uh, but the patristic consensus, uh, uh, you know, was to... You know, recognize that relationship, but of course, that's been highly, you know, uh, disputed. And you, you have, you know, many harsh, very harsh anti-Jewish statements by uh, church fathers like John Chrysostom and, and others. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, re recognizing that these terms were not around, I, I think you can see in broad outline some of the different different approaches that you know break down roughly along uh, inclusivist and exclusivist lines. And within the New Testament itself, I mean, is it too simple to say that with St. Paul, you've got something like an, an inclusivist approach with the metaphor of the nations being grafted onto the tree of Israel, and then in the revelation of John, 
you have something more exclusivist with the idea that the synagogue is no synagogue except for a synagogue of Satan. Uh, yeah, I mean, another passage I would call attention to is, is you know, Paul's Mars Hill speech when he speaks of the unknown, oh, yes. unknown mm -hmm. God. Uh, and so I think many, many of those who want to have a more inclusivist vision, um, that is all, often the touchstone, uh, touchstone verse. Uh, but also the Gospel of John as well, um, you know, the, the Logos theology that, uh, you know, Christ is the eternal Logos and where, wherever there is truth and goodness, Christ is to be found. And I think that's often provided a, a sort of a hermeneutic lens for a more inclusive vision as well to look for rays, scattered rays of the, the Logos, you know, throughout the, throughout the nations and belief systems of the world. Very good, very good. Well, I, I, I could talk about, you know, different visions of worship in the New Testament for the whole hour, but we need to get to the 20th century. So let's get to the age of Islam. When Islam joins the scene, early Christian inclusivism, as far as I could tell from your book and my own readings, has largely given way to a thoroughgoing exclusivism. But there are moments in the period that folks call the medieval period that hint towards different kinds of dialogue. So what are a couple of those moments and into what kind of scene do these moments that look a little bit like inclusivism emerge so that they are notable? Yeah, I mean, with the, with the coming of Islam, you have, you know, many Christian um, Muslim dialogues, more often kind of misunderstandings or uh, mutual efforts to proselytize uh, one another. Um, you know, many of these take place in the east. Some of them take place in, in, in uh, Baghdad and the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, but, um, you know, I wanted to isolate three episodes. I mean, there may be several more, but three in particular that I thought you see something of a more ironic dialogue taking place, even if it's just in literary uh, form. Um, one, one that, however, was not in literary form was uh, uh, Francis of Assisi, he um, uh, and colleagues, uh, you know, went to went to Egypt and talked to the Sultan there. And there's you know debates about exactly what happened, um, but there there is something of a more ironic uh, understanding between Francis Christianity and Islam at that time. And he's often been looked back to as a figure of. Um, uh, of interreligious dialogue, or maybe a, a proto figure. Uh, some re in some recent trips to the Middle East, Pope Francis has actually invoked that trip of Francis uh, to Egypt. Uh, but I also invoked two less known um, figures, uh, Raymond Lull, who was a Catalonian, that he wrote a work entitled uh, The Book of the Gentile and the Three Wise Men. And then uh, sometime, he's a medieval figure, sometime later, around the time of the, uh, uh, the Ottoman sack of Constantinople, uh, you have Nicholas of Cusa, uh, who wrote a work entitled The Peace of Faith. And both of these are just literary dialogues, but they're trying to uh, sort of sketch out a, a conversations that take place, takes place principally between um, Christians, Muslims, and Jews. Uh, that it's not just about refuting the opposition or just about proselytizing, but there are some genuine efforts of understanding. Um, you know, in Nicholas of Cusa, and he lives during the what was a apocal moment in world history um, when the, the Byzantine Empire fell, uh, Constantinople uh, fell to the Turkish advance. That was a, a shocking event 
uh, for Christendom. Uh, and, and of course, many had a much more martial attitude toward um, Islam at the time. But he, he wrote this work, which is the Latin translation is on the peace of faith, where he you know, gathers you know, over a dozen uh, interlocutors, uh, some Christian, some, um, uh, some Muslim, Jewish, different ethnicities, and they have a conversation, <laughs> more or less. And you know, so, some have even seen Nicholas of Cusa. I mean, he, he's a you know a, a high-ranking clerical figure, is a you know hardly an Orthodox Christian, but something of a proto-universalist. Um, uh, but others argue that he's actually, at the end of the day, he's an Orthodox Christian, but he's just he's pioneering. He's trying to figure out kind of his own his own what's a, a more ironic way to go about uh, discussion among different um, different belief systems, different religious. And and one thing that's interesting about uh, the visit of Francis to the Sultan is that it is concurrent with some of the early Crusades, right? That's right. Yeah, it takes place uh, in the in the context of a of a crusade, and uh, there there is something sort of quixotic about it. You know, Francis just thinks he's going to go over and you know have a have a discussion, have a uh, uh, you know pioneer a more, a more peaceful approach. Um, uh, so in, in the broader context of the, of, of the time, he's a real outlier, um, but, uh, but yeah, you, you're right. I mean, that's, that's an important contextual um, element for, for what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, that, that really stood out to me because I knew that both of those events had occurred, uh, but it never occurred to me before to think of them as part of the same crusade as you, as you set them forth in this book. Now, I, I, you mentioned a, a kind of universalism emerging with Nicholas of Cusa. And it seems like another figure who is key in the early part of your history uh, is the, uh, the Mughal emperor Akbar, uh, who has a, a similar but not identical universalist vision. I mean, is he, is he intellectual kin with Nicholas of Cusa, do you think? I think you could say that. I mean, there, there's no direct overlap or influence. I mean, the Emperor Akbar, uh, he's a Mughal empire, uh, emperor, which was a uh, Islamic empire, uh, corresponds roughly to what historians call the early modern period from around the time of Luther up until the, um, the time of the, the French Revolution. Um, you know, his influences are probably more from a sort of uh, Sufi uh, Muslim spirituality, um, but he, you know, he's also an emperor, so he's, you know, in charge of a highly complex, highly volatile um, religious empire in what's today Pakistan and India that would be made up of, um, you know, Hindu, Muslim elements, Sikh elements, Jains, uh, Christian missionaries had been on the scene, uh, and of course, there are ancient Christians in India, but you have Jesuit missionaries that he um, had dialogue with, but it seems like all evidence suggests he just enjoyed the conversation. So he actually, at his um, imperial uh, city that he built, uh, Fatipur Sikri, uh, which is south of New Delhi, and I had the opportunity to visit um, a number of years ago um, to where he, he built essentially this house. It's, the translation is often the house of worship, but it was really a house of conversation that he would just get, you know, uh, different Muslims from various backgrounds, Sunni, Shia, uh, Sufi mystics, Jesuit missionaries, um, and he enjoyed the conversation. Um, toward the end of his life, you know, he did pioneer this sort of almost like a made-up religion. Some of his courtiers um, and he and others, it was a very kind of elite thing, but it was 
trying to kind of take some of the best elements of various religions. But scholars still debate, you know, what what this was all about, and it was a it was a you know a contrived belief system. But um, it, I think it definitely has universalist elements uh, uh, to it. Very good. Well, most of your history uh, dwells on about a 75-year span, give or take, from the late 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. So what historical variables shift to make a phenomenon called interreligious dialogue intelligible in this period where it wasn't before? And what characterizes this new intellectual paradigm, pluralism, that comes to compete with exclusivist and inclusivist visions of worship and wisdom communities? Yeah, you know, I'm trained as a modern historian, so I, I, I have a little more footing uh, when I get to the 19th and 20th century. But I, I did want to have one chapter, what I just call harbingers, that uh, trying to recognize that, you know, even new historical phenomenons often have some type of precedent in the past. And that's why I dealt often way outside of my areas of expertise and comfort, uh, some of the figures I just, I just mentioned. Um, but what changes? I mean, the big event that I assume we're going to talk about, uh, or one of the first that his scholars look back to is the first major interreligious event of the modern age. It was the World Parliament of Religions that took place in Chicago in the context of the World Fair in 1893. And I try to provide a little historical context uh, for that event um, that's you know, quite different than some of the medieval and early modern harbingers that I looked at uh, early on. Um, one thing, you know, you, have, you could say early globalization has taken place with the European empires and especially the British and the French empires. So there's just much more global trade and global connectivity. And with that, more scholarship um, being done of, uh, and more thinking about the whole question of religious alterity of religious otherness uh, taking place in the 19th century. I mean, of course, there are also uh, you know, technological developments. This is in the wake of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, so you have the, you know, the development of the, the telegraph and uh, the steamship and trains. So there's, you know, a greater possibility to create an actual, you know, interfaith dialogue, bringing people from various parts of the globe than it would have been um, uh, in earlier, uh, earlier period. Um, you know, this is also the time of the, the development of the research university and it's often called orientalist scholarship, Western scholars who are looking eastward, trying to understand the foundations of um, uh, Christianity and Islam and uh, the religions of the even farther, farther east. Um, you know, theology had long been clean of the, you know, Western university, but by the the 18th and especially the 19th century, you have a, a new field of scholarship. Um, uh, sometimes it's referenced by the German word Religionswissenschaft, or uh, a, a, you know, a cousin to what we would call religious studies today that tries to study uh, religious phenomena, not from a particular theological perspective, uh, but from um, you know, a more neutral analytic uh, perspective. Uh, so that's something uh, you know, some of the movers and shakers of the Chicago event were quite influenced by Religionswissenschaft, or sometimes referred to just as the history of religion or the comparative study of religion. Um, so th those were a few things that were uh, in the air. In the, um, to, what, to what extent does that new academic field called religious studies or history of religion contribute to pluralism as a viable way to think about 
different, you know, ritual traditions? Yeah, well, you, I mean, you might say it has something of a relativizing effect. Um, you know, people are aware, uh, you know, just by way of, you know, contrast, in a way someone in the Middle Ages was not aware of the, the you know, religious diversity of the globe. Uh, so this poses something of an intellectual problem for many people. You know, if we, someone finds themselves in Western Europe or in North America, uh, and they, you know, start studying uh, shamanistic beliefs or Buddhism or the great complexity of Hindu belief system. You know, the question's bound to emerge. Well, Emma, how do I know that I am right? Is is religion just a matter of geography and uh, you know, at a philosophical level, that can induce a type of uh, relativism? Um, you know, at a more social, I'll just call it social sciency type of uh, view. It, it can. Uh, induce a type of comparative approach. But theologically, this is where pluralism comes in. Someone say, well, maybe, you know, maybe God has revealed himself in different ways to different people at different times. And, uh, you know, the, the task is to, you know, piece the puzzles together, but not, ex not assume one is exclusively right in some way, but um, uh, uh, to, you know, think a little more pluralistic, pluralistically about uh, about revelation. So it really, I would say, doesn't fully come on the scene theologically until the 20th century in a major way. You know, many of the figures at Chicago in 1893 were broadly inclusivist, or at least the Christian um, uh, figures involved, and they, they want to often have a generous read of other world religions, but they would see Christianity as sort of a summit or a pinnacle, or Christianity is expressing more fully what other faiths do only uh, dimly or inchoately. Uh, but I, I think you're right. It's definitely kind of on the scene or becoming on the scene as a, as a theological option for more theologians by the time you get to the 20th century. Very good. Well, I want our listeners to go and read this book, so I'm not going to ask you to rehearse all the details of the world parliament, but I do want them to hear a little bit about one of the genuinely fascinating characters in this story, uh, namely the Swami Vivekananda, and you can pronounce that differently if I pronounced it wrong. Uh, what makes him a surprising and what makes him a fitting star for this event? And how do his Indian and colonial and educational and personal particularities influence the ways in which we talk about world religions even now? Yeah, he's a fascinating figure. Yeah, Swami Vivekananda. Uh, you know, there are a number of standout figures or personalities at the um, what was just called the World's Parliament of Religions. And it was, uh, I mean, just to give a brief bit of background, at the time of the World's Fair, which was sort of conceived as an attempt for the young United States to show off its industrial and technological and political achievements, um, there was a movement started actually by this Chicago lawyer, um, uh, by the name of Charles Carroll Bonney, who thought that this doesn't, you know, need to be just material in orientation. This World's Fair should have some type of spiritual component. And through various twists and turns, the, uh, he and various other people involved arrived at the idea that, you know, why not? Why not create this big dialogue among the different religions of the world? Bring people to Chicago, you know, the, the American frontier, is, uh, uh, get them over here. So many people came from uh, different parts of the world. Um, I, mean, I mean, by and large, it was still mostly a Western affair, and, and, and the you know, large majority there uh, were um, Christians of some uh, of some stripe. But Swami Vivekananda, he, here you have a 
uh, a Vedanta trained, uh, you know, Hindu guru and uh, scholar who uh, was deeply in touch with, uh, you know, Indian intellectual and spiritual traditions, but he had a colonial education, so he spoke perfect English. Uh, and he just, he just cut an extraordinary figure. He impressed people. Um, you know, for many people, they'd never heard, many Americans in Chicago had never heard a, uh, uh, someone of this uh, eloquence and uh, the depth of his Hindu spirituality speak before. And he was a, a, a media sensation. Uh, you know, after the fair, he went on these speaking tours, you know, across the, um, the United States and on the East uh, East Coast, and uh, I mean, there, there are many things that could be said about him, but in some ways he tried to kind of one-up some of the organizers. Generally, theologically um, speaking, um, the organizers had this inclusivist view that there were other religions of the world, but they were just dim or inchoate or poor manifestations of religious uh, truth at its fullness, which culminated in Christianity. And uh, I mean, I, I don't mean to belittle that. I mean, there's a very coherent way of thinking about that position uh, theologically, but this this is in more 19th century colonial context. So there's a lot of other things going on in terms of just Western power, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But even Kananda sort of tries to turn the tables and say, no, you know, you, you missionaries are sometimes, uh, you know, doing a ham-fisted job and you really don't know anything about you know, Hindu traditions. And actually, uh, you know, uh, Hinduism is a term he actually embraces. It's a, it's a term only coined by Western scholars in the 19th century, is that we have a more magnanimous bosom to absorb all the other traditions of the world. And, uh, you know, and he, he spoke a message of peace. There should be no uh, violence. There should be no proselytizing. Uh, and um, anyway, he's an extraordinary kind of East-West figure in his background. And uh, you know, scholars who study um, you know, religious pluralism today in the United States would say that you know, he is a, you know, a, a figure that you know, through him and a few others that came to the, the conference at the time, the introduction of certain strands of Eastern thought and practice like yoga into the United States, that he's an you know, important uh, turning point figure. Uh, for that. So learning, learning more about him and his background. Even today, he, he's a major figure in, in Indian intellectual history. If you travel to India today, you'll, you'll come across uh, Vivekananda's name. Um, oh, I'll stop. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. But there is one question that I, that I do have to pose with this, you know, Indian superstar with, you know, some very influential Buddhist speakers and with a raft full of liberal Protestants from America, how in the world did they end up with only one Muslim yeah, speaker? That, that, that's a good question. Um, you know, there was a lot of concern uh, about the, uh, the conference uh, from religious hierarchies and a number of different faith traditions. Some ultimately supported it, um, uh, but some had real questions. Uh, there was Catholic participation. The American hierarchy was largely on board, but in Rome, there was skepticism uh, of it. Uh, but the Archbishop of Canterbury actually condemned it. Uh, and so did the Ottoman Sultan, you know, who would be recognized as one of the major political religious figures in the world. Uh, both, which, which is odd, because when I read the history of the Ottoman Empire, I never got that impression. Right, yeah. 
I, I haven't read a yeah, whole yeah. lot. I should point that out. But in the little that I've read, I never yeah, would have I mean, gotten I mean, that impression. Certainly the Ottoman Empire provided sort of enclaves for different uh, religious traditions to go about their way. Um, uh, and so, I mean, there is a tolerant tradition, you can say, within the Ottoman Empire. But something um, uh, about this event being, uh, you know, a very visible platform staged in the West, uh, there were a few Muslims for India who were slated to come, and some sent letters and some sent uh, speeches. Uh, but there was only one, there was this convert, um, uh, an American convert, and that, that really uh, ruffled some feathers. <laughs> uh, you know, most of the, uh, the events, you know, went off without too much controversy. Um, and forgive me, I'm, I'm actually forgetting this gentleman's name at the uh, present, but when he gave a talk, you know, some of the dicier issues came up of Christianity's relationship to Islam, the, the questions of polygamy came up, and there were a lot of, um, you know, uh, nasty cartoons and, and papers about this one, what he's called the American Mohammedan, you know, who, uh, who spoke. So that, you know, unfortunately, that, that this was not really a, a high point of sort of Christian-Muslim uh, relations. It was probably more, uh, what was probably most engaging about it was the, uh, you know, the Christian uh, dialogue uh, with, with traditions of South South Asia. Very good. I've actually got your book in my hand right now. So his name was uh, Alexander Russell Webb. He had changed his name to Muhammad Webb. Right. That's right. Very good. Very good. I wish we had more than an hour, but we need to move on to London because this is an event that really I had never heard about even, much less read about. Um First, because I've bungled too many British names over the years, how does one even pronounce Francis Young Husband? And more importantly, how does his particular career lend its influence to the British Empire Exhibition of 1924? Yeah, this was, you know, the, the book sort of takes a turning point approach. You know, one major turning point is the Chicago event of 1893, which is more or less, you know, people know something about that. Um, now, if the book, you know, can claim originality in one specific way, it would be with trying to put on the map this similar conference that took place in London in 1924 in the context of this sort of imperial fair um, uh, that uh, the British Empire stage, you know, we know in retrospect, you know, the empire is only decades away from uh, falling apart after the Second, Second World War, but at the time, Post-World War I, it was an attempt to show all the achievements of the British Empire. And a, uh, a number of scholars uh, associated with what was called then the School of Oriental Studies, what's called today the School of Oriental and African Studies, I believe, uh, decided to do something similar to what had happened at Chicago, but it would be exclusive to the British Empire. So from religious representatives from different parts of the empire, of course, it's a very large empire, including many parts of South Asia and Africa and the Middle East. Um, they staged that and, and they asked their keynote speaker, uh, Sir Francis Younghusband, and he's really sort of a adventure imperialist, you know, in the old British uh, imperial sense. Uh, he had, uh, you know, lived in India. Uh, he was an explorer and military man who had, you know, crossed many parts of Central Asia. He was part of the very controversial British invasion of Tibet in the early uh, 20th century. So th there's a really kind of dark side to him uh, for some of the things that he did. Um, but while he was in Tibet, he had this sort of mystical epiphany, you know, that there was this 
as, as he put it, you know, all religions preach joy and there needs to be um, a sort of communion of all faith traditions throughout the world. Um, and uh, so he had begun to, you know, write on the topic and express these, what are in some ways very highly universalist um, uh, beliefs uh, prior to the uh, 1924 conference. Uh, he gave this keynote speech there, um, and through various twists and turns, he was a key figure that established what's called the World Conference of Faiths, uh, one of the longest enduring uh, institutions of interfaith dialogue. It still exists in Britain today. Uh, that didn't, that wasn't officially founded until another conference in 19, 1936, uh, but uh, it was his, uh, you know, sort of headstrong idea to, to you know, found this conference and try to make interfaith dialogue um, happen. The, I mean, the last thing I'll say on this is, uh, you know, this is between the wars and uh, the League of Nations had been founded as a, uh, uh, what, you know, ultimately becomes the United Nations. But Young Husband and some of the people who were involved with wanted to found essentially a religious version of the League of Nations, something that would not just bring countries together, but would bring religious traditions together. From across the world uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to talk about cooperation and uh, uh, peace and those types of things. So no, nothing, you know, quite like the League of Nations or the United Nations came out of it. But that that was sort of in the air, and that was what he and others were hoping, hoping to do through this conference, but especially through the, the one of the conferences that came after it in the 19, 1930s. Okay. Well, one of Young Husband's innovations, uh, when I compare this event to, you know, what came in Chicago and in the intervening time, is that he brings discussion into it. He allows people to pose questions, and he seems to be confident that more good than harm will come from such a move. So to what extent did that pay off, and to what extent should he have thought a little bit harder about the dangers inherent in question and answer sessions? Yeah, I mean, in, any uh, one who's sort of emceed a conference or a panel discussion knows that when you open the floor to questions, that things can go in all kinds of uh, directions. And and this is one of the interesting things, both about Chicago in 1893 and London in 1924, these conferences, they were deemed by their planners sufficiently sort of risque and controversial that they, uh, as a just a floor rule, they said that the speaker you know, from whatever religious tradition will just explain their views and it will not be Q&A essentially. And that was a way, um, I, I guess, not to get into, you know, difficult, naughty conversations over theological um, uh, views. But you could also say that it had a downside, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't allow for conversation. But um, by the time of the 1930s, young husband thought that there would be a, a way to do that. And it was in a limited way, uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, you might argue that, you know, what he was trying to do uh, in that follow-up conference by allowing actual dialogue to take place, not just dialogue in the broadest sense with speakers of different traditions, giving their views and holding forth and sitting down, um, uh, you know, open, opens other questions, of, you know, about what's the appropriate form and format and purpose of interfaith dialogue. Very good, very good. Once more, I'll, I'll remind our listeners that we have scarcely scratched the surface, but since we have but an hour, I want to ask about Vatican II and the world's religions. The special focus of this council begins with the relationships between the church and global Jewry in the wake of the Shoah, but eventually that focus expands to include all sorts of religions. So tell that story. How did it begin 
with Judaism and then eventually come to encompass so many more traditions? Yeah, no, it, it's a fascinating story that um, twists and turns in various directions. Uh, I mean, Vatican II and the important document on interfaith dialogue, Nostra Tate, that comes out of it are, are fairly well known. Uh, what I'm trying to do in my book is contextualize it, not so much in the sweep of Catholic history or Catholic theology, but a, a broader story about interreligious dialogue that includes the other some of the other elements that we have talked about. But, uh, you know, it was Pope John the 23rd, who in 1959, you know, surprised everyone and called for a, a new ecumenical council uh, to kind of re rethink the church's relationship with modernity, to put it most simply. But, it, but at first, the question of interfaith dialogue uh, or, e or even ecumenical inter-Christian dialogue was not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, uh, or, or at least that was not, uh, you know, seen as the essential feature. But I mean, certainly ecumenism, I think, more more so than you know interfaith dialogue. Uh, but as but as planning took place, uh, and uh, bishops were queried about, uh, you know, what should be the items of discussion, um, you know, some began to raise the question of Christians' relations with Jews. I mean, we're talking. I mean, we're not too many years from the Holocaust, so that was certainly in the air. The was the devastation, and as more knowledge came out about the uh, the Holocaust that had taken place, you know, during the Second World War, there were also uh, some Jews. Uh, one uh, French French Jew in particular, Jules Isaac, who had some family members. Who lost their life in the Holocaust? That you know, he was he wanted to find out what are the origins of anti-Semitism, and he took undertook some personal theological studies to study the New Testament, and he kind of came to the astounding conclusion that it's not really there in the New Testament. That this is only a medieval or later development um, of the anti-Semitism that had plagued Europe, and and he argued that it's in some ways a bastardization of Christianity. Uh, and that you know, better Christian theology could arrive at a less anti-Semitic, uh, you know, understanding of Christianity. So he actually uh, uh, spoke with uh, John the Twenty-Third, and John the Twenty-Third got him connected with some other uh, figures, especially one German Jesuit, Augustin Bea, who was involved in ecumenical and interfaith uh, uh, elements of the of the conference. And so that, that's when it started. It started not really just as a, a statement about interfaith. Relations. This document I refer to, Nostra Aetate, uh, but and here's where it gets inter very interesting, I think, and, and complex. Uh, you know, the state of Israel had been founded in 1948, and many of the bishops in Muslim areas thought if the church had a you know positive statement about the Jews, um, you know, that's going to just create turmoil. It's going to be seen, whether it's intended or not, it's going to be seen as a pro-Zionist statement, a statement for the for the uh, the um, state of Israel. And uh, so the council theologians and father said, well, we're just going to widen the discussion. We're going to make this a discussion about Muslims too. Uh, but then, of course, the bishops of South Asia began to say, well, if you say something about Jews and Muslims, you know, what about traditions of South Asia, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, uh, etc.? So Interestingly, you know, a document that began um, with uh, just to be about Jewish-Christian relations post-Holocaust was widened uh, to include a number of world traditions and become sort of a general statement on uh, uh, the significance of uh, interfaith dialogue. Very good. Um, 
because my mentor from seminary, Fred Norris, was a history, historian of Christian missions, the effects of Vatican II on Christian missionary theology and practice especially interests me. So according to these documents, how should the work of Christian missionaries change in light of, you know, what the church has learned in the modern moment? That's a fantastic question. I mean, it, I mean, it gets at uh, the heart of a, you know, what's been a difficult theological discussion, or not just for the Catholic Church, but I think many churches. Um, you know, oh, I mean, it, it was huge in my Protestant seminary education. So yeah, I can, I've definitely heard the echoes. Yeah. So, uh, and and the Catholic Church has thought long and hard uh, about this. You know, one of the things that was set up after Vatican II was a pontifical council both for ecumenical relations, but also for interfaith dialogue as well. But if you go back to the early modern period, there's the, 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 uh, the, the technical term for this is a dicastery. There was a, uh, an organ, a council for the propaganda of the faith, for the spread of the faith. So that's, that, it's, it's duty was to do mission or proclamation, uh, you know, the Great Commission, uh, making disciples of all nations. So if that's the goal of the church, what's the goal of dialogue in relation to that? Um, and that, and that's a, you know, that's a, that's a delicate issue and different Christians today, you know, depending on where you might fall in that sort of a pluralism, inclusivism, exclusivism framework, you know, have come to different conclusions and are often bitter disagreements about that. Um, you know, the Catholic Church, through this Pontifical Council for Dialogue, have produced a number of um, documents uh, uh, trying to balance, you know, a couple of them, even, or at least one of them, uh, has the title Dialogue and Proclamation. Um, and they argue quite, quite deftly um, that, uh, you know, again, I'm thinking of this from a more internal Christian theological perspective, that if you just do mission and you really don't care about dialogue, you know, that's in some ways not an act of love. You just don't care about the, the people you're talking about, care about understanding them. It's, it can come across as very overweening and super confident and arrogant um, if you're just doing that. But if also, if you just do dialogue and not mission, you have to airbrush, you know, a lot out of the tradition and a lot out of the New Testament that seems to call for that. Um, so, um, I mean, I, I can go you know, say more about that, but I, I would just, you know, sum it up by saying that the, the Catholic Church, I think, immediately recognized that as a theological issue that needs to be, you know, carefully thought about, and there, there are many ways to go wrong about it, but balancing dialogue, really caring about and talking and listening to people uh, is important, but it's also important not to sacrifice that to um, uh, what's often called mission or proclamation, uh, but I think we can all think of many incidents in history where you know, people have got that wrong, and I, I, you know, it's it's not an issue that's gone away. I think that's that's still a salient and you know, a delicate uh, theological topic. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Now, as I turned the page from the end of the Vatican II chapter to the conclusion, I had a pretty good idea that I knew what kinds of questions I was going to pose in this interview. Then the conclusion pretty much anticipated every inquiry that I was going to put to you and uh, took them in all kinds of interesting directions. So again, knowing that our listeners are going to read this book, listeners read this book, I want them to hear some initial thoughts on some of these questions. And the first one that I want you to talk about is this. What kinds of philosophical and historical difficulties arise when events like those in Chicago and London and Rome treat religion as a genus whose species are a list of isms 
like Catholicism, Protestantism, Judaism, Hinduism, and so on? And what alternatives are scholars in the field working on right now? All right, there's, there's a lot in that question. Let me see if I can, I can do it. I got after. excited, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, well, thank you. I mean, uh, you know, in the conclusion, I, you know, I'm trained as a historian, so historians are allergic to, you know, saying normative things sometimes, but I, I at least tried in the conclusion after the, I've given a lot of historical narrative and context to raise some of the, the type of bigger issues that uh, take place, uh, veering a little bit more into theological and philosophical uh, territories. I mean, one thing, and this is a, you know, a point I make in the book itself, that, um, you know, religion itself in some ways is a Western term. Uh, you know, many, uh, many civilizations don't have that term, and it's a scholarly term that really comes out of the Enlightenment in the 19th century, and especially this field of the comparative study of religion. Right, and I, and I think I've read every one of William Cavanaugh's books, so Okay, uh, yeah, the, okay. The, the yeah, fact yeah, that we're yeah. 45 minutes in and I'm just now mentioning him, I want the reader, the listeners to uh, yeah. understand how difficult this has been for me. <laughs> but go ahead. So, uh, yeah, no, no, no. That, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, he and others. Um, uh, I mean, it's not to say they're not cognate ways of thinking about it. And I think many other languages even recognize the usefulness of the vocabulary, but it sort of presupposes a, you know, a post enlightenment broadly Lockean view of the separation of the religious sphere from something we would call the secular or the political sphere. Uh, and many of the terms, like, I mean, Hinduism itself, I mean, there's great extraordinary complexity on the level of the belief system in India, and to kind of pack them all together into something called Hinduism uh, is something of a, um, you know, a, a, a simplification of the, of the you know, pre-existing um, complexity. Um, so, I mean, briefly, some of the issues that, you know, come up, you know, might be, you know, exactly, you know, who has authority to speak for a religious tradition. Um, you know, if your model is more like Western Catholicism, where they're bishops, you know, that's a clear model, but it's not necessarily clear, like, who speaks for Shinto or Taoism, you know, how do you, how do you figure out if someone is just speaking off the cuff, or they're, are they authorized by some community to represent them? Uh, you know, I think that's one uh, you know, one idea. I mean, maybe another idea is to sort of assume that all religions deep down say the same thing. You know, sometimes in pluralist, you know, more facile pluralist positions, you'll get that. You know, you paper over a lot of complexity and believe there's some pre-existing thing called religion, and deep down, basically everyone says the, the, the same thing. And I think that's a, you know, kind of an inappropriate shortcut through a lot of complexity. Um, you know, to arrive, um, uh, to arrive at uh, that. So I, I guess if anything, you know, I, I, I want to, uh, you know, being a historian to, to make people recognize that interfaith dialogues have a certain historical and geographic specificity to them. Uh, there's not necessarily an abstract thing called Islam or Christianity. I mean, yes, I mean, there, there is coherence in those terms. So I, I don't want to be, you know, go too postmodern on people and say that's, you know, it's all interpretation, it's all complexity. But, you know, having a dialogue, a Muslim Hindu dialogue, say in like northern, uh, you know, India or Pakistan, where there's some very specific conflicts in history, you know, might be different than, you know, two people in. Los Angeles or London of uh, the same background. Um, so, you know, in summary, <laughs> I would say, I, I, I hope by, uh, you know, calling attention to some of the vocabulary problems that I, I've also called attention to the necessity of thinking about 
um, you know, historical and geographic specificity. Well, and, and one instance of this that, that really came up nicely uh, in your history uh, was when, uh, and I can't remember whether it was the Pope or whether it was another official involved with Vatican II, uh, made the public statement that, uh, you know, we affirm Judaism and Islam uh and those are religious entities, not political entities. And I mean, I, I read that and I thought, man, that is a, that, that's a thought that is only intelligible after the British Empire. I mean, there, there just is no separation between Islam as a religion and Islam as a political phenomenon in the 14th century. No, that, that's right. I mean, I, I am not an Arabic scholar, but uh, what I gather from other good scholars that the Arabic word din is really nothing like our religion. And, and uh, din, D-I-N, is the way it's often transliterated into English. It implies more of a just a, a right order, something along the lines of the Hebrew shalom, a, a way, correct way of being in the world, a correct way of viewing and relating to God. Right. Or maybe the Latin pietas. Yeah, yeah, maybe a, a pieta. Right, that involves, you know, the gods and also the emperors and also your legion and also your family and also <laughs> just all of those things rolled into one. That's right, yeah. So it, it doesn't really have, and it, you know, just there's a lot of Western history. Uh, you know, you think of Jefferson and Locke and separation of the church and state, and it just doesn't have that, that background. Very good. Well, one call to action, and at least I read it as a call to action. You just said that as a historian, you're normative to, uh, you're, no, you're not normative to allergies. You're allergic to normative statements. <laughs> um, so, of course, I'm going to focus on that, uh, is you call for a dialogue between Muslims and Buddhists and Christians and Taoists to pursue something more like platonic dialogue when we dialogue, seeking answers that haven't yet emerged rather than striving to make public events arrive at what seem to be predetermined conclusions. Uh, I mean, in the history that we've talked about today and in the history that you've explored in this book, I mean, how might these events have emerged differently uh, had the answers been a little bit more open when they started? And I know yeah. asking a historian to speculate is also a heresy, yeah, no, no. Uh, but that, that's never slowed me down before. <laughs> that's fine um, you know in some ways this might you know come from my experience um i mean i, I come at interfaith dialogue as a historian um you know not trained necessarily in religious studies or theology and uh it was actually i was teaching at gordon college and directing an academic center there in the post 9-11 period and understandably many students want to know well you know, can we hear from a muslim themselves you know what they have to say and, and so i ended up staging some of these dialogues um but then i, I just became interested in well, where does this you know this is a fairly recent concept where does it come from so i ended up attending a number of events uh and i would say that you know they're of mixed uh, quality and you know some i was most disappointed at or those that uh, you know, where it's sort of there's a predetermined outcome that we, everyone needs to get along. And, and this, that's not, of course, that's a great thing. We want to get along in the world. But they, they had, there was a, um, you know, the shorthand I would call it sort of like a kumbaya mentality that, you know, we're talking about peace, you know, and uh, you have, after one speaker over another emphasized that, you say, yes, I, I get that. But, you know, wouldn't it be more interesting to, to approach, you know, how, how do Muslims and Christians think about prayer or, 
uh, their understanding of Mary or Jesus or, or some more theological uh, particular uh, things. Um, and obviously there've been many historical examples of just shouting matches and proselytization where you're not really listening to the other. And I, I recognize that as a, a, difficult, a, 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 a difficult task. Um, but, you know, I think in some contexts, especially when trust is established between members of different faiths, you know, pursuing larger questions of religious truth, you know, as, as difficult as that might seem, um, uh, seem more captivating uh, to me. Uh, you know, that's not, that's not to say there's not a place for uh, different, uh, you know, world religious leaders or others coming together and, uh, you know, and the promotion of peace, uh, but, um, um, you know, why, why not have a little debate, dialogue? <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, well, now that I've asked you to go away from history, I'm going to let you talk as a historian for a moment. One of the things that you say early in this book, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not quoting, is that this project occupies itself less with the metaphysics of interreligious dialogue and more with the history of the same. So how do these pursuits relate to each other, but more importantly, how do they differ from each other and how do we benefit from having both of them in front of us? Yeah, and maybe I, I began to answer that question a little bit by giving some of my personal background of, of staging some uh, dialogues, um, uh, you know, not really having been trained in the first place. But as I became interested and read more, I, I became aware of just how much had been written and how many, uh, you know, especially in the post-Vatican II period, you know, how many different organizations dedicated to various forums and uh, alliances and dialogues. Even um, almost any major city today will have some type of interfaith uh, council. Um, you can just Google and you'll have thousands of different organizations that come up that are really globally, you know, especially after 9-11 was another sort of major push for uh, the importance of interfaith dialogue. Uh, but I came to realize that most people thinking about it, discussing it, were either practitioners, you know, so they were they were imams, rabbis, uh, Christian clergy, uh, you know, who were doing this, recognizing it's important in some degree, or they thought about it very theologically. You know, how, how do you how do you justify this from scripture, or how do you um, uh, you know from other other sacred texts? How do you think about uh, this type of engagement? But I guess just the contextualization of the modern phenomena itself and where it came from and how it was staged and what are some of the turning points, it seemed to be a, a very important historical development that just did not have a lot of historical contextualization around itself. So I thought there was just a lot of amnesia uh, about the, the phenomenon itself and with my toolkit as a historian, uh, especially, you know, one of the great uh, tools in the toolkit of historians is this idea of turning points. You know, when there's a complex, big phenomenon, can you at least try to isolate a few major moments of transition uh, to, you know, to make its story uh, comprehensible to, uh, you know, to, to various people? So that, that's what, you know, if, you know I, I'm trying to bring to the table is, the, and, and I hope, you know, those who are involved and, and, and think theologically and in practical terms more astutely than I do about interfaith dialogue that the book will be a, uh, of service to them and helping them kind of understand the, the larger the larger context of the whole whole phenomenon. Well just to give a little background on my uh, excitement about the book when uh, Yale University Press uh, emailed me about you know reading the book and interviewing you uh, I was in the maybe second week 
uh, of my first attempt to teach a world religions class at my small Christian college. Uh, so, I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I went in there armed with my uh, William T. Kavanaugh and, you know, uh, years of teaching, you know, Quranic and Vedantic texts in, you know, literature courses. Uh, and, you know, I just kind of realized that uh, I didn't really have any notion of how we get from, you know, the poets of South Asia from the 17th century that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. And I love teaching them. But how do we get from there to, you know, the Athens, Georgia, Interfaith University of Georgia Club? And, uh, you know, I think this book, I mean, does a pretty nice job of, you know, telling that story of, you know, the notion of, of dialogue. How did it become so central? So I really do kind of appreciate that. I really do. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's great to hear. And, you know, again, I, I really appreciate the work of you know, theologians and people who do more comparative uh, work in theology. You know, again, my training is more as a, as a modern intellectual and cultural uh, historian. And, and, you know, the nice thing about this project, you know, it, I had to become more literate in the world uh, religious traditions uh, just to, uh, you know, to write the book. So I, I really can't claim expertise in other areas, but it really, it really pushed me uh, to, you know, learn more from other fields uh, as well. Well, good, good. I, uh, I, I often get uh, some good-natured ribbing from colleagues and students alike that whenever I teach the, uh, the required sophomore literary survey, which we do by time period, that uh, my versions of the ancient medieval and the early modern uh, often turn into intro to religion classes anyway. So uh, like I said, I, it's funny you said that your background is almost exclusively modern history. Mine is almost exclusively uh, pre-enlightenment literary studies. So uh, I thought this is a good book for us to come together and talk through. But Tal, I, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about religion, dialogue, and whatever else as we head for the door? Um, well, I, I mean, I hope if anything, the book would spur more thinking um, about it. Um, you know, I think those who are accustomed to think about it more in theological terms or maybe maybe more in one of those areas of exclusivism, inclusive, and pluralism, it would make them think about other options. Uh, yeah, I hope that, I mean, there are many uh, faith traditions that there's still skepticism about it, and you know, sometimes it's uh, uh, appropriate skepticism, but I hope that they would recognize that it's, uh, you know, it might be for them too, and I guess recognizing that there, there are many different layers of dialogue, um, you know, in one of the documents of the Catholic uh, Church, uh, they came up with this little typology, and maybe this will be the last thing I'll say, but they they nicely break it up into four different types of dialogue. Uh, one, they just call a dialogue of life. And that could be just as, you know, a, a Christian and a Jew living next door to one another and, you know, getting to know one another and just, uh, just over the common things of life. You know, another is a dialogue of action. Um, you know, this might just be different faith communities in a, a particular area coming together to do some work of social good, of cleaning up a, a pond or, you know, cleaning up litter from the roads. It doesn't require, you know, people hashing out their religious differences, but they can come across, they can come, come together just for shared uh, social goods. Um, but then thirdly, there is a dialogue of theological exchange. And, and this involves more experts, people, you know, scholars in various traditions and 
Uh, I think there is a role for this too. I think sometimes people exclude, assume that's the only, that's, that's what interfaith dialogue is, but uh, I think it has a, it certainly has a role, but it, it doesn't exhaust uh, the possibilities. Um, and then last, they speak of a, a, a dialogue of spiritual experience. And um, you might remember in the conclusion, you know, one of the things that really captured my attention was there's this um, monastic interfaith dialogue organization that uh, came into being after the Second Vatican Council that tries to bring um, uh, uh, monks and ascetics from various traditions together and, you know, talk about spirituality and, uh, you know, so, uh, and, there, and there might be other types as well, but I, I found this typology help, helpful and, uh, you know, thinking about that, you know, the people from different walks of life, this might be something they can participate uh, in too. And, uh, you know, finally, I, I wouldn't want to, you know, shortchange, uh, you know, some of the theological um, uh, questions that come up, uh, I think, especially those involving the relationship between mission and dialogue. Uh, I think those are, uh, those are very important uh, and ongoing issues as we, as we talked about. Uh, uh, earlier. Tal Howard, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you again uh, for having me. I, I enjoyed it very much. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is The Faiths of Others, A History of Interreligious Dialogue from Yale University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying... Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.